you have to work even when you want to do this work of pure creation for the goodness of creating something beautiful the world is constantly telling you that's not the reason you should be doing this you really should be doing it because you want to hustle and create a brand and provide and do all these other things so the question this book on getting out of bed asks is well how do we survive how do we how do we move how do we move when we get overwhelmed Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Alan Noble is Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's co-founder and editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture and an advisor for the AND campaign. He has written for The Atlantic, Vox, BuzzFeed, The Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and First Things. His new book is On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living. It's a book about mental suffering, whether diagnosed, undiagnosed, or undiagnosable. He writes, if you take away one truth, one thing from this book, I know with certainty, let it be this. Your life is a good gift from a loving God, even when subjectively it doesn't feel good or like a gift, and even when you doubt God is loving. Please get out of bed anyway. Dr. Alan Noble, I'm very glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today, so thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, your new book is on getting out of bed. Um, I think it's going to release about the time this episode releases. Uh, it's a book about mental suffering. Yeah. Why did you write a book about mental suffering? What's this about? Yeah, well, I've had my own struggles with mental affliction and, uh, seen, you know, I work with uh, college students. I'm a college professor and, um, right now we're going through a, mental health crisis in higher education um in america in general yeah i would say but but in higher education among young people there's especially a lot of uh, mental illness and mental suffering mental anguish affliction and so it's something that i feel like i was very acquainted with and uh it just seemed like um something that people needed to be talking about more in a way that i thought was um helpful yeah so when you say mental suffering you're including diagnosable mental illness or depression or anxiety but also undiagnosable or undiagnosed yeah so part of what i wanted to do with this book is you know i i know i i know i just said that people needed to talk more about mental suffering. Um, But people are already talking about mental illness a lot. And what I wanted to do with this book was sort of rethink, not just talk more about mental illness, but to rethink the way that we talk about mental illness. And so one, uh, one way I wanted to do that was sort of exploding the, the way we define it Um, because so often what 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 happens is that we focus on very specific diagnosed mental illnesses which is important which is valuable but what gets lost is that there are some forms of mental affliction that are just that go undiagnosed mm-hmm. some are undiagnosable um yeah. but but what remains essential to being human is that we suffer at one point or another some kind of mental affliction and so i wanted a book that would address that yeah uh, one thing I really appreciate about your book is the the places where you um, are tempted to get into theoretical territory, and you said, you know what, whatever the 
you know, the whatever explanation we come up with to explain the following, there are some practical things that we need to bear in mind, right? At, at, at every yeah. moment, um, you know, at every moment we have a choice, for instance, yeah. um, that uh, whatever, you know, wherever we come down on the question of, say, um, uh, free will or determinism, um, every day we, at every moment, we experience something that feels like the opportunity to choose. Right. And therefore, we have the obligation to choose wisely, which yeah. is the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many interesting theoretical questions. So, for example, we, you know, I mentioned earlier this mental health crisis that's plaguing our, our, our nation. And there are lots of really good and interesting explanations for that right now. How much does social media play in, into this? How much does the, the COVID ep, uh, epidemic or the pandemic play into this? All these great questions. Uh, and they're worth engaging, worth asking. I just don't want to get into them because I wanted to write a book that was um, more existentialist. In the sense that it's uh, saying it's asking these questions that that matter to our day to day, moment to moment existence, um, and the most fundamental of which is is why get out of bed, why live, um, which I think is a question that we have to have an answer for. Everybody has to have an answer for at one point or another. Yeah. So yeah, this whole book is sort of offering an answer to that question. What's the what's the two sentence answer to the question of why live? Why get out of bed? Because your life is a gift from God, and because your life is a witness to the goodness of that gift. And you talk to me about the the. So you you are describing an objective fact or objective truth, right? Regardless of how I feel about the value of my life today, it is. A gift from God. It's valuable. I have responsibilities to other people, even if I don't feel like fulfilling those responsibilities. Right? All those things that are true, whether I believe them or not. Um, and yet, my subjective experience is very different. Might be very different yeah. from that objective truth. Yeah, particularly when you when you're going through a period of mental affliction, um, your mind gets uh, murky. It, you know, your mind lies to you and tells you that uh, your life is not worth living or um, it doesn't have value or purpose or meaning mm -hmm. and um, that you are not worth anything. You're not contributing anything. And um, what I try to argue in this book is that or part of what I'm arguing in this book is that we have obligations that we didn't ask for, we didn't sign up for, we didn't ask to be a witness to the goodness of creation, but your life is a witness to the goodness of creation. So there's an edge to this book, um, which has struck people in different ways, mm -hmm. because I am, I am saying... You know, you have responsibilities, you have burdens, uh, you have a weight that you need to carry even when things are hard. And um, that's part of what this book is about. Um, when you say you've gotten, I can't remember how you phrase it now, but varying reactions to the book, like early readers yeah, have um, criticized your approach as being what, insufficiently sensitive, nuanced, What what's the... Not so much criticism, but they've they've noted that it's it's interesting that I'm I'm telling people who are already suffering with mental affliction. I'm reminding them, hey, when you choose to get out of bed, you're actually 
uh, bearing witness to the goodness of creation to other people. That means that you have, well, the subtitle of the book is what, what is it? Sorry, I had to look, uh, the burden and the gift of living. Mm -hmm. Part of it is a burden. And again, you didn't sign up to be a witness, but people are watching you and they're watching you when you're going through periods of depression or suffering or sadness or anxiety. And, um, the way you respond is going to communicate something about the goodness of life to them. Um, and so some readers have noted, wow, you're, you're really putting on, uh, that's, that's an additional obligation that you're reminding people who are already struggling. Mm -hmm. And my response has been, that's true. But when you're going through a period of mental affliction, one of the things that you feel or tend to feel is that, that your life lacks purpose. Yeah. And so part of the gift of this is that you get to remember, you get reminded that, that, wow, just by getting out of bed, feeding the dog, taking the dog out, caring for your children, making breakfast, going for a walk, you're testifying to the goodness of creation. And that is beautiful. Yeah. You, you say at one point, I'm paraphrasing, you know, when you are, in mental affliction, the world doesn't stop for you. Yeah. And the world doesn't stop needing you. Yeah. Which is a pretty remarkable thing to to remember. Um, it feels like it should. When you're in those periods, it feels like the world should stop. And it feels like the world should stop needing you. But that's not what happens. Yeah. And um and when we remember that, the encouraging thing is that we matter uh-huh. very clearly we matter yeah and i think there's something going on here uh, you know when we are willing to um align ourselves with a reality that's outside ourselves good things can start to happen mentally and emotionally and spiritually right yeah 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 that's right. We see that our uh, very limited subjective human experience is not the only thing that's true, that there are bigger things, bigger problems, bigger needs, bigger worries uh, than our own. And that's encouraging uh, in a way. It puts it puts our lives into perspective. Yeah. Um, you say early in the book, that there's a danger in relying too heavily on the language of mental health. Mm. What do you mean by that? That's something that could be taken well, the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it can. Yeah. That's something I went back and forth on, but I, I wanted to be careful with that because I do repeatedly advocate for the use of, of psychology and psychiatry. I think both are very beneficial and, and good, but I also think that it's possible for us to get to a place where we, we um, professionalize or medicalize or um, put our experiences too tightly into a box. Um, and that can lead to several different problems. So, for example, one of one of them, and this is something that people don't like to acknowledge, but one of them is is that you can come to to see your mental affliction as part of your identity. Mm-hmm. as and and it can become part of how you express yourself i you know so that you identify with your depression or you identify with your anxiety or identify with your whatever it might be and um 
you you are much bigger and broader than than your suffering, whatever that suffering might be. So that's one of the temptations, I think. Um, another temptation is that uh, when we talk too much about mental health, I worry that um, we're drifting away from the experiential quality to mental suffering, mm-hmm. that okay. it's this day-to-day, moment-by-moment experience, um, not just something that we can objectively describe and uh you know mental suffering is always internal Mm -hmm. it manifests externally sometimes but it's always an internal personal subjective thing and i I think it's important to recognize those qualities which is what i tried to do in writing this book help me understand how um the language of mental health takes me away from the experiential um fact of suffering well it doesn't it doesn't have to but i think it can by objectifying it too much hmm. by putting it into a box by saying i have this disorder i have this illness that means it has these qualities i belong to this community hmm. i ha- receive this kind of treatment and um i'm not saying don't get that treatment i'm not saying don't identify with that community but i am saying that when we talk so much about with in the language of mental health um we can objectify it too much and not talk about the moment by moment experience of let's say depression mm-hmm. um and that's what i want to avoid yeah and so what alternative are you what what alternative are you offering to the mission is the alternative to in addition to the language of mental health there you How go. You describe yeah. the language that that you want to add to the language of mental health. So we talked a little earlier about sort of exploding the definition of of mental suffering. Yeah. You know, right? So that's part of what I want to do is I want to acknowledge that you know when somebody's going through a period of mental affliction, maybe they could get a diagnosis, maybe they couldn't, um, but they're still suffering, and that yeah. is fundamental to human experience. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to talk about is the universality of it. This is something that that we all experience at one point or another. Um, it looks different, sometimes dramatically different, but mental affliction is a common human experience. And I think that's really important for us to understand and emphasize. And, uh, and the other aspect of it is that I, I want to talk about that existential quality, that moment by moment, day by day um experience of what it feels like to be in these places which i tried to do tried to capture in the book yeah yeah um this i think this is relevant you 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 remark and i this feels like it was cut and pasted out of your last book it's been a while since i've read your last book but uh <laughs> but um i d- <laughs> Did you cut and paste some of this? Uh, <laughs> Neither affirm or, nor deny. <laughs> but you say, I've got it right here. I can just read it. What if our contemporary society is not actually built uh, for us, for human beings, for humans as God designed us? If that's the case, then sometimes anxiety and depression will be rational and moral responses to a fundamentally disordered environment. Yeah. That yeah. you did say something very similar in your last book, correct? Am I right about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a nod to the last book. This yeah. is a maybe a sales pitch to the last book. <laughs> uh, because there is a thread. There is a thread yeah. Yeah. um 
there is a trajectory. In fact, from my first book, Disruptive Witness, you know, I I talk about the way we distract ourselves because we don't want to acknowledge our sin nature, for example. Mm-hmm. And then in You Are Not Your Own, I sort of expanded the reasons why we uh, turn to coping mechanisms and acknowledge that, okay, it's not just our sin nature that causes us to want to escape. Mm-hmm. What if what if it's also our environment? What if yeah. what if our environment is fundamentally and deeply disordered and perverted mm-hmm. so that we feel ill so we feel yeah. anxious and so that book deals with it um more sociologically uh, even though i'm not a sociologist and uh this book sort of sets aside the sociological questions the philosophical questions and then just says okay but what does it feel like what <laughs> what does it feel like to live in this environment and and what do we do about that? Um, when you say it is rational and moral to be depressed and anxious, or sometimes you say sometimes it's sometimes yeah. and moral to be <laughs> depressed and anxious in a uh, in a in an environment that's not made for us. Yeah. Um, do you have anything more to say about that? I, 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 that's a really interesting idea, and I think it's a really I think this gets back to the idea of um, that you're talking about mental affliction beyond the language of mental mental health. You know, right? I mean, I don't know if this beyond. But anyway, you talk. I, I, I don't need to. <laughs> I don't need to explain this. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when we look at our world and we look at the problems of our world, um, sometimes uh, I think it could be a moral response to be to be depressed at least and and anxious um we look at the disorder that we see the violence the depravity the hopelessness in our neighbors and sometimes in our own hearts it makes sense um for us to respond in those in those ways um and i'm i'm not advocating depression or anxiety i'm not saying go out and intentionally seek it but i'm saying it makes a whole lot of sense when you when you read the newspapers when you read the headlines when you follow social media when you live through something like the covid pandemic right um i think there's something empowering and knowing that gosh it it makes a whole lot of sense that you feel lonely and and depressed right now uh after with given what you've lived through that makes a whole lot of sense. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's an empowering thing to know. And in my last book, I tried to say, okay, I, I'm not I'm not leaving people there. And in this book, I'm not leaving people there. I'm not saying, you know, you know, it's 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 rational for you to be depressed, so stay depressed. Yeah. But but I want to acknowledge that it it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. What you've lived yeah. through is difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it you know, some some language that I've find helpful to think about those kinds of things is distinguishing between reality and the status quo, right? There, mm. There's the status quo, but it's not, and it's true, but it's not the truest thing. And there yeah. are things that are truer. Yeah, that's right. And, and as we conform ourselves to the things that are truer, maybe that's a, a, a way to, to move past the, the depression and anxiety that are completely understandable given the status that's- quo. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's right. And I talk about that in You Are Not Your Own. And the way I try to describe it is, 
you know, um, the way I try to articulate the difference between the status quo and reality is that the status quo says you are your own and you belong to yourself and you've got to bear that burden. But the reality is that you belong to God and that lifts us out of this burden. Um, but I also point out in the book uh, that um, even when we acknowledge I belong to God, it's still hard. Yeah. It's still hard because the world is still going to say, hey, you've got to belong to yourself and you need to hustle and work and progress and become the best version of yourself in order to belong to yourself. And you've got to have this constant progress pro uh, process of pushing back against that. And I think you've got to belong to communities, church communities that help you push back against that. Otherwise you just, you just get overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a, a writer's night, you know, songwriters night. Uh, I live in Nashville. And, um, and so that, you know, was really as the, as the writers who were, who were in this beautiful, uh, writing these beautiful songs, you know, really smart, really, really great songs. But, and then to hear them between songs talking about, um, you know, the, the pressure to, I mean, they didn't put this directly, but you could just feel the pressure to define myself by this work that I've done and to find yeah. my identity in it. And, you know, or, or, you know, some of it was, and here's, you know, here's the song that, that bought me a house and, and it's, you know, uh, <laughs> which, is uh, I mean now I, what am I getting at here? I mean the the even the the joy of creating, I guess is what I'm saying that yes is, is fraught can so easily be fraught with these questions of identity and questions of of um, you know, achievement, achievement, competition, idolatry, pressure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You have to work, even when you want to do this work of pure creation for the goodness of creating something beautiful, the world is constantly telling you that's not the reason you should be doing this. You really should be doing it because you want to hustle and create a brand and provide and do all these other things, which, you know, some of them are good, like being able to buy a house, but but there's that competitive we, I think I argue that in, in You Are Not Your Own that we live in this hyper-competitive world. And I think that's, uh, I, I still hold to that belief. I think that's true. And and so we're constantly being pressured in these various ways. And so the question this book on getting out of bed asks is, well, how do we survive? How do we, how do we move? How do we move when we get overwhelmed? Yeah. Um, I, I alluded to this earlier, but I, I'd like to, um, to, maybe return to it. It's the idea that, um, you know, you say that the lines between when you're, when you're in the midst of, of um, mental suffering or even mental illness, um, the lines between personal freedom and the power of mental illness between agency and um, determinism, all these lines are, can be very murky. Yeah. Um and we and there are different theories, you know, yeah. as to what is what is, you know, how free will and determinism work together, whatever. Um, and you say, really, those are theoretical frameworks. A theoretical framework is not illegitimate, yeah. but it's also not super relevant when it's time to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, right. 
You said, with few exceptions, we experience each moment as if we have a choice of how we will act. Um, Even when our minds suffocate us with hopelessness and we feel unable to move, we still experience the ability to choose. Yeah. That's one of the things that's so that makes, I think, mental affliction so difficult is that there aren't these nice, tidy boundaries. And and when you're suffering, you wish there were. You wish you could go to your spouse and say, I'm sorry, honey, I literally cannot do X because my mental condition prevents me from doing that. But as I say, with few exceptions, that's with a few exceptions, that that's just not the way it works. You don't get the privilege of knowing exactly how much agency you have. Could I do a little bit more? Could I get out of bed a little earlier? Could I help out more? Could I love more? Could I serve more? Could I work more? Um, Instead, could I be engaged and present more? You know, instead it's, it's murky. It's murky. And uh, where that, leaves us is with the internal choice that we have whether and again i i just kind of think that um it's sort of beside the point how much agency we actually have um Mm -hmm. it's a great question but and and this is i guess one of the way you know to answer your earlier question about the language of mental health i think this is where maybe sometimes the language of mental health can 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 make us think that there are nice tidy boxes for things uh-huh. yeah. where the reality is it's like when you're really depressed you uh, in the book i say something like you have more agency to help uh you have more ability to help than you think um and 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 less than than you should and and so yeah. you have to make that choice to engage that's the bird that's the responsibility you you have and i don't say that to guilt anyone but to inspire them to get up to get out of bed to do the next right thing yeah um you 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 get on the subject of humility Hmm. which is always interesting um and you say sometimes the humility you need is not a kind of smallness of spirit or a sense of your own weakness, but the faith to act as if your life is a blessing, because it is. Mm. Um, I love that. Some listeners, readers, and maybe I need some help understanding how's that humility, right? The the idea of of recognizing my life as a blessing, um, which is a, a good thing. How is that humility? So. One way to approach this would be to ask, what's the what's the alternative? And the alternative to seeing your life as a blessing is seeing your life as a task or a quest that you're yeah. on, that you yeah. are hustling to create. So going back to those musical artists who see their task of creation as a burden that they have to fulfill to create a popular brand so that they can provide or do whatever. And uh, it takes great humility to ex- to 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 put your hands up and and to say to be um, to be Mary instead of Martha, mm-hmm. to be Mary and sit at the feet of Christ and say this is this is enough. And uh, my theory is that most of us in America today are Marthas. We want to hustle and provide and fix things, and we want to do stuff for Jesus. We want to do stuff for our lives in order to feel like we are fulfilled. And uh, instead, we have to have the humility to be like Mary and just sit at his feet. Mm. 
Yeah. And receive. And receive. It, yeah. It it takes a lot of yeah humility and a lot of faith to, to say, this is on offer. Um, and the harder thing isn't necessarily the better thing. No, no. The, and, and what's uh, for for some of us, our disposition, the harder thing is actually just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, <laughs> yeah. We'd rather get yeah. up and hustle. Yeah. That's the uh-huh. harder thing is sitting. Uh, so there's this paradox here at the heart of Christianity that the the harder action is resting. Mm-hmm. The harder action is resting, not hustling. And uh, one of the things that makes it harder is that the world is yelling at us, hustle, 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 do more, do more, be more, be this best version of yourself. And Christ is saying, come, sit at my feet, accept the gift of your existence. And we want to say, no, let me make something of it first, and then I'll come sit at your feet. Yeah, yeah. I will, um, my, you know, if I'm going to be a living sacrifice, I've got to make sure that I've got something to, to give. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me make an interesting sacrifice for you, God. And and he <laughs> says, no, you don't get it. I created you. That's the yeah. sacrifice. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, you know, as I was reading your book, I kept thinking about something that, you know, you probably said when you were a teenager, I probably said, like, I think every teenager has said this at some point. That is, I didn't ask to be born. Mm. And it's true. We didn't ask to be born, but here we are. Yeah. And um, you might not have asked to have the people in your life who are in your life, but there they are. Yeah. And um, and my uh, the I feel like there's there's something else to say about this. I mean, my my the fact that I didn't choose to be born doesn't change the fact that I have responsibilities, accountabilities, that people need me, as you said. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. Yeah. No, that's absolutely on? right. Yeah. No, we we can no, but I think that's an important. I think that's an important point, and it's at it's at the heart of this book is that idea of the burden of being a, a witness to other people. Um, you know, I I have kids and they're watching me. I have students and they're watching me. I have neighbors and a spouse and they're watching me. And um, to some extent, I signed up for those communities. To some extent, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And um, the differentiation between those two doesn't really matter because the reality is they're watching me and I have a duty to proclaim the goodness of life. And the flip side of this is when I refuse to get out of bed, when I suggest that life is not worth living, that means that people who are watching me are going to think, maybe my life is not worth living as well. Maybe my life, maybe when when hard times come, maybe it's not worth me getting out of bed. Um, and that's a it's a hard teaching. It's a hard saying, but we're being watched. We didn't ask to be our brother's keeper, but we are our brother's keeper. And um, as I said earlier, the the flip side of that is it's also a purpose because when you are in a period of great depression and you feel that purposelessness, you can remind yourself, gosh, just by getting out of bed, I'm communicating to other people that this creation that God has given us is good and it's worth embracing. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was really helpful when you said the, um, 
you you can't bear the weight of the world on your shoulder. By the way, whether you are uh, in the midst of mental affliction or not in the midst of mental affliction, you can't bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah, and yet um, you can't deny the efficacy of your of your what you said the efficacy of your paltry offering of love. Yeah, um, and you know when you're in the midst of mental suffering, it it is it actually is true that you don't have as much to give as other times in your life. That's right. And yet you give what you can. Yeah. And, and you say that, and, and and I love that, that reminder that maybe you can give a little more than you thought you can give. That's uh, right. And that God, you say God is pleased with these paltry offerings. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, I mean, I, I just felt that is, that is such a practical way of, of helping people in the midst of mental suffering. And I appreciate you pointing yeah. that out. And I'm going to remember. Thank it. you. I think. I think I'll remember. Good. We'll see. I guess we'll see. Good. I'll, I'll get back with you. Uh, <laughs> um, if not, you can reread it. It's right there. <laughs> there you go. And maybe buy another copy at retail. That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, but I, I do. If you don't, I mean, you may or may not think this is a, a fruitful line of of discussion. But you say God is pleased with our paltry offerings. But sometimes the people around us need more than we can than we can give them, right? Our paltry offering, yeah. Maybe the our kids, our spouses, even our neighbors might need what they need is bigger than what we can give. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, it's it's, the leading it is. It is. No, absolutely. It's the case. Yeah. And so God's pleased with our paltry offerings, even when we can't give all that that they need. Um, But we have to remember that the one who meets their needs ultimately is God, not us. And so there's a tension here. There's a tension here. We don't want to let ourselves off the hook. We don't want to say, you know, God's going to have to provide for my spouse because I'm so depressed I can't do anything, right? And then then what we're doing is we're denying that we actually have agency. Mm -hmm. So I want us to live in this tension where we acknowledge that ultimately the one who provides and cares for and loves the people around us is God. And he's the one uh, who's going to care for them rightly. Um, But we still have the obligation to do what we can do and the best that we can do. And we can always do, I think a little bit more than we let than we, than we acknowledge. Um, at least some of us. Yeah. 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 Um, and we can be, as you said, we can ignore these theoretical questions of what, you know, where does my freedom stop and my mental illness or my mental suffering take over? Just do a little bit, do a little yeah. bit and then do a little bit more. That's um, right. That's right. Um, You know, this is a, a podcast about writing, about the writing process, the mm. writing life. Um, and do you have any thoughts on how some of these principles apply specifically to people who do creative work? I mean, we've, we've already Talk a little bit about, you know, the way creative work can get infected with issues of identity, with sort of worldly striving, those kinds of things. Um, but it, I mean, you've you've written three books now, probably That's in various true. states of of mental distress. Yeah. 
Yeah. And sometimes the writing causes mental distress. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, yeah. and people who do creative work tend to be a little more sensitive to the yeah. hurts of the world. I, yeah. My friend Helena Sorensen says, you know, people tell writers you need to have a thick skin, but the thin skin is what makes you sensitive enough to to do some of this work. Huh. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 directly applicable. Uh, in many ways, all of my in many ways, all of my books have been um, sermons to myself, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> lectures to myself, or letters to myself. And yeah. this book is a letter to myself uh, yeah. in 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 many ways, um, and that includes the admonition to get up, get out of bed and to do the good work that God has given you to do. And, uh, I have found that doing things like writing involves choosing to begin to do the work and being faithful with the work, even when you don't feel like you were up to it, um, because it can come and, and because it's a blessing to other people. Um, uh, you are giving. You are bearing witness to what you've seen in the world, right? And what's right. true, and yeah, giving it. You're giving an account of the hope that's within you. Hopefully, ideally, that's that's the task. Yeah, and it's interesting that you said, you know, the thin skin and the, reminding me, you know, that I've written three books. It feels weird that I've written three books, but the the origin of this book was that I, um, well, part of the origin was that I had written an essay on mental suffering that this book came out of. Mm-hmm. And I was editing, you are not your own. And when you're in the process, at least for me, when I'm in the process of editing, I'm by that point, I'm sick of the book. By that point, I'm I'm not convinced that it's any good. Yeah. I'm I, I I know I've created a thing and my editor has told me it's worth going out into the world. And I'm just having the faith that my editor knows what they're talking about. Yeah, right. And, and while I'm in these pits of 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 not self-loathing, but just just insecurity about this work that I was doing. I was getting uh, emails from people saying, wow, this essay on mental suffering that you wrote is really helping me. And I thought, gosh, I want to work on that project. I want to make that into a book instead of working on this thing that I no longer, it's not that I didn't believe in it, but you know, I had all these, you know, this self doubt. And, um, and uh, so that's where this book came out of part of where this book came out of. Yeah. I think it's also helpful for people who do creative work to to remember this idea of whatever the mysteries involved in inspiration and hard work and all these kinds of things. Can I write a book today? Probably not, but I bet I can write a paragraph today. Yeah, and I, I can do something today. Uh, I can and I can I can choose that. Yeah, yeah. You can always do a little bit more and. Um... And some days I've had to in various for various writing projects, I've had to set the bar really low. I've had to say mm-hmm. to myself, okay, I'm gonna do two hundred words today. Mm-hmm. That's it. Two hundred words. I can I know I can do two hundred words. I know I can do a hundred words, hundred and fifty words. Um, but and then once I hit that two hundred words, I realize, wow, I think I could do a little bit more. I think yeah. I could do a little bit more. So I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep yeah. going and see see what I can get done. Um, but being faithful to the work, showing up and being faithful to the work, even when you don't feel like you can is it's the only way in my experience that you're able to do anything really true and beautiful and good and worthwhile. 
Yeah. And I think it's probably worth worth noting that as we're talking about doing a little bit more, that that quickly becomes that that can quickly become a um, some sort of of uh, self defeating. You know, I need to do. You know, I need to do, prove myself. I need to do more. But, but I think it's safe to say, and you can you can clarify that the only reason doing a little bit or a little bit more is valuable is because these other things are true. Right? That 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 yeah. life is life is good. Creation is good, and I'm bearing witness to that. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you do, and I thank you for that warning, that 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 caution. Yeah, because what it can do is it can lead to a, a, a shame spiral right. where you say, gosh, I could have written 500 words. Yeah. And once you go down that road, you're always going to, man, I mean, that shame spiral is why when I was editing my last book, I was thinking this is not because in my mind, and that and that's true with this book too. In my mind, there's this platonic book yeah. called On Getting Out of Bed that is so good. Oh, I, I yeah. really wish I could share it with you guys, but I can't <laughs> my head. Uh yeah. Um I can do what I can do, and and I did what I did, and yeah. that's where we are. Uh, I have to say, I, I have to. I, I'd love to see the Platonic version of this, but the version you, <laughs> you produced, I, I find very helpful. Good, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, all right, I want to ask you uh, my my typical last question, and that is, who are the writers who make you want to write, especially with regard to the things you've been writing lately? Yeah. Um... I think I think JD Salinger is probably the one uh, especially really? on getting out of bed. Yeah. Yeah, I think Franny and Zooey, he has this way of writing these letters between his characters and in in many ways this book is a way of 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 trying to capture that. Some of his characters really love each other in this and and care about each other. I'm thinking of in Franny and Zooey the glass family, the relationship between the glass family, there's just some real genuine love that they have and concern for each other. And, uh, I, I think that was the biggest influence I would say. Uh, yeah. Really? I think you're the yeah. only person ever to, in almost 200 episodes to, uh, to <laughs> mention JD Salinger. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, that makes me want to revisit. I've never read Franny and Zooey. Oh uh, my gosh, you're in for a treat. Yeah, um, and I, I like Catcher in the Rye just fine, um, but uh, I'm eager now to to check out Franny and Zooey. I have it somewhere, a very ratty, oh, man. very ratty version of it that I don't know where I got it. So good, it's the All best right. version. <laughs> Alan Noble, uh, thanks so much for being here. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I hope this this uh, book, I think it will do a lot of good to a lot of people. So. Thanks for writing it. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.